This is a Reconstruction radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is The Great Tribulation by David Chilton. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1987 by Dominion Press. Chapter 10. All Creation Takes Vengeance. The seventh trumpet was the sign that there shall be no more delay. Revelation 10, 6-7. Time had run out. Wrath to the utmost had now come upon Israel. From this point on, St. John abandons the language and imagery of mere warning. Jerusalem's destruction is certain, and so the prophet concentrates wholly on the message of her impeding doom. As he describes the city's fate, he extends and intensifies the exodus imagery that has already been so pervasive throughout the prophecy. He speaks of the great city, chapter 16, verse 19, reminding his readers of a previous reference, the great city which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Chapter 11, verse 8. Jerusalem is called Sodom because of its sensual, luxurious apostasy. Ezekiel 16, 49-50. And because it is devoted to total destruction as a whole burnt sacrifice. Genesis 19, 24-28. Deuteronomy 13, 12-18. But St. John's more usual metaphors for the great city are taken from the Exodus pattern. Jerusalem is not only Egypt, but also the other enemies of Israel. He has shown the Egyptian dragon chasing the woman into the wilderness, Revelation 12, a revived Balak and Balaam seeking to destroy God's people by war and by seduction to idolatry, Revelation 13, the sealed armies of the new Israel gathered on Mount Zion to celebrate the feasts, Revelation 14 and the saints standing in triumph at the Red Sea, singing the song of Moses, Revelation 15. Now in chapter 16, seven judgments corresponding to the ten Egyptian plagues are to be poured out on the great city. There is also a marked correspondence between these chalice judgments and the trumpet judgments of chapters 8 through 11. Because the trumpets were essentially warnings, they took only a third of the land, With the chalices, the destruction is total. Chalices, number one, on the land becoming sores, chapter 16, verse 2. Number two, on the sea becoming blood, chapter 16, verse 3. Number three, on rivers and springs becoming blood, chapter 16, verses 4 through 7. Number four, on the sun causing it to scorch, chapter 16, Verses 8 and 9. Number 5. On the throne of the beast, causing darkness. Chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. Number 6. On the Euphrates, drying it up to make way for kings of the east, invasion of frog demons, Armageddon. Chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. Number 7. On the air, causing storm, earthquake, and hail. Chapter 16. Verses 17 through 21. Trumpets. Number one. On the land, a third earth, trees, grass burned. 
chapter 8, verse 7. Number 2. On the sea, a third sea becomes blood, a third sea creatures die, a third ships destroyed, chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Number 3. On the rivers and springs, one-third waters become wormwood, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Number 4. A third of the sun, moon, and stars darkened, chapter 8, verse 12. Number 5. Demonic locusts, tormenting men, chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. Number 6. Army from Euphrates kills one-third mankind, chapter 9, verse 13 through 21. Number 7. Voices, storm, earthquake, hail, chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Plagues on Egypt. Number 1. Boils. Sixth plague, Exodus 9, verses 8 through 12. Number 2. Waters become blood. First plague, Exodus 7, verses 17 through 21. Number 3. Waters become blood. First plague, Exodus 7, verses 17 through 21. Number 4. Darkness. Ninth plague, Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23. Number 5. Locusts. Eighth plague, Exodus 10, verses 4 through 20. Number 6. Invasion of frogs from river. Second plague, Exodus 8, verses 2 through 4. Number 7. Hail. Seventh plague, Exodus 9, 18 through 26. A loud voice from the temple issues the command authorizing the chalice judgments. Revelation 16, 1. Again, St. John underscores a basic point of his prophecy, that these terrible plagues originate from both God and the Church. Chapter 15, verse 5 through 8. These are judgments from God in response to the prayers of his saints. I have called these seven containers chalices, rather than vials, KJV, or bowels, NASV, to emphasize their character as a negative sacrament. From one perspective, the assistance in the chalices, God's wrath, which is hot, chapter 14.10, seems to be fire, and several commentators have therefore seen the containers as incense bowls, as in chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Yet the wicked are condemned in chapter 14.10 to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And when the plagues are poured out, the angel of the waters exults in the appropriateness of God's justice. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. Chapter 16, 6. A few verses later, St. John returns to the image of the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Chapter 16, 19. What is being modeled in heaven for the church's instruction on earth is the final excommunication of apostate Israel when the communion of the body and blood of the Lord is at long last denied to her. The angel pastors, entrusted with the sacramental sanctions of the new covenant, are sent from the heavenly temple itself and from the throne of God to pour out upon her the blood of the covenant. Jesus warned the rebels of Israel that he would send his martyrs to them to be killed, so that upon you may fall all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, 
all these things shall come upon this generation. Matthew 23, 35 and 36. Drinking blood is inescapable. Either the ministers of the new covenant will serve it to us in the Eucharist, or they will pour it out of their chalices upon our heads. Accordingly, seven angels come out from the temple, chapter 15, verse 1, and are told to pour out the chalices of God's wrath. The Septuagint uses this verb, ekeo, in the directions to the priest to pour out the blood of the sacrifice around the base of the altar, Leviticus 4, 7, 12, 18, 25, 30, and 34, and 8, 15, and 9, 9. The term is used in Ezekiel with reference to apostate Israel's fornication with the heathen, Ezekiel 16.36 and 23.8, of her shedding of innocent blood through oppression and idolatry, Ezekiel 22.3 and 4, 6, 9, 12, and 27, and of God's threat to pour out his wrath upon her, Ezekiel 14.19, 28.13, and 21, 21.31, and 22.27. In the New Testament, it is similarly used in contexts that parallel major themes in Revelation. The spilling of wine, Matthew 9.17, Mark 2.22, Luke 5.37. The shedding of Christ's blood, Matthew 26.28, Mark 14.24, and Luke 22.20. The shedding of the martyrs' blood, Matthew 23.35, Luke 11.50, Acts 22.20, Romans 3.15. And the outpouring of the Spirit, Acts 2, 17-18, 33, 10-45, Romans 5, 5, Titus 3, 6, Joel 2, 28-29, and Zechariah 12, 10. All these different associations are in the background of this outpouring of plagues into the land that has spilled the blood of Christ and His witnesses, the people who have resisted and rejected the Spirit. The old wineskins of Israel are about to split open. The First Chalice as the angel pours out his chalice onto the land, Revelation 16.2, it becomes a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The sores are a fitting retribution for apostasy, God placing his stamp of wrath upon those who bear the beast's mark. Just as God had poured out boils on the ungodly, state-worshipping Egyptians who persecuted his people, Exodus 9, 8-11, so he is plaguing these worshippers of the beast in the land of Israel, the covenant people who have now become Egypt-like persecutors of the church. This plague is specifically mentioned by Moses in his list of the curses of the covenant for idolatry and apostasy. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you on the knees and legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Deuteronomy 28, 27 and 35. The second chalice. The second angel pours out his chalice into the sea, Revelation 16, 3, and it becomes blood, as in the first Egyptian plague, Exodus 7, 17 through 21, and the second trumpet, Revelation 8, 8 through 9. This time, however, the blood is not running in streams, but instead is like that of a dead man, clotted, coagulated, and putrefying. Blood is mentioned four times in this chapter. It covers the face of Israel, spilling over the four corners of the land. While the primary significance of this plague is symbolic, 
referring to the uncleanness of contact with blood and death. Leviticus 7, 26-27, 15, 19-33, 17, 10-16, 21, 1, Numbers 5, 2, and 14, 11-19. There are close parallels in the actual events of the Great Tribulation. On one occasion, thousands of Jewish rebels fled to the Sea of Galilee from the Roman massacre of Terakai, Setting out on the lake in small, flimsy boats, they were soon pursued and overtaken by the sturdy rafts of Vespasian's superior forces. Then, as Josephus recounts, they were mercilessly slaughtered. The Jews could neither escape to land, where all were in arms against them, nor sustain a naval battle on equal terms. Disaster overtook them, and they were sent to the bottom boats and all. Some tried to break through, but the Romans could reach them with their lances, killing others by leaping upon the barks and passing their swords through their bodies. Sometimes, as the rafts closed in, the Jews were caught in the middle and captured along with their vessels. If any of those who had been plunged into the water came to the surface, they were quickly dispatched with an arrow, or a raft overtook them. If, in their extremity, they attempted to climb on board the enemy's rafts, the Romans cut off their heads or their hands. So these wretches died on every side in countless numbers and in every possible way until the survivors were routed and driven onto the shore, their vessels surrounded by the enemy. As they threw themselves on them, many were speared while still in the water. Many jumped ashore where they were killed by the Romans. One could see the whole lake stained with blood and crammed with corpses, for not a man escaped. During the days that followed, a horrible stench hung over the region and it presented an equally horrifying spectacle. The beaches were strewn with wrecks and swollen bodies, which, hot and clammy with decay, made the air so foul that the catastrophe that plunged the Jews in mourning revolted even those who had brought it about. The Jewish War Volume 3, 10, 9 The Third Chalice the plague of the third chalice, Revelation 16, 4-7, more directly resembles the first Egyptian plague and the third trumpet, 8, 10-11, since it affects the rivers and the springs of waters, turning all the drinking water to blood. Water is a symbol of life and blessing throughout Scripture, beginning from the story of creation and the Garden of Eden. In this plague, the blessings of paradise are reversed and turned into a nightmare, what was once pure and clean becomes polluted and unclean through apostasy. The angel of the waters responds to this curse by praising God for his judge, just judgment. Righteous art thou, who art and who wast, and holy one, because thou didst judge these things. We should not be embarrassed by a passage such as this. The whole Bible is written from the perspective of cosmic personalism. The doctrine that God, who is absolute personality, is constantly active throughout his creation, everywhere present with the whole of his being, bringing all things to pass immediately by his power and immediately through his angelic servants. There is no such thing as natural law. We might do better to speak of God's covenantal habits or the habitual order which God imposes on his creation through the actions of his angels. Our sciences are nothing more than the study of the habitual patterns of the personal activity of God and His heavenly messengers. This is, in fact, precisely what guarantees the validity 
and reliability of both scientific investigation and prayer. On the one hand, God's angels have habits, a cosmic dance, a liturgy involving every aspect of the whole universe that can be depended upon in all of man's technological labors as he exercises dominion under God over the world. On the other hand, God's angels are personal beings, constantly carrying out his commands in response to our petitions. He can and does order the angels to change the dance. There is, therefore, an angel of the waters, and he, along with all of God's personal creation, rejoices in God's righteous government of the world, God's strict justice, summarized in the principle of an eye for an eye, Exodus 21, 23-25, is evidenced in this judgment, for the punishment fits the crime. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets, cries the angel of the waters, and thou hast given them blood to drink. As we have seen, the characteristic crime of Israel was always the murder of the prophets. Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16, Luke 13, 33 through 34, Acts 7, 52. Jesus named this fact as the specific reason why the blood of the righteous would be poured out in judgment upon that generation. Matthew 23, 31 through 36. The angel of the waters concludes with an interesting statement. By the apostates' shedding of blood, they are worthy. This is a deliberate parallel to the message of the new song in Revelation 5.9. Worthy art thou to take the book, and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase us for God with thy blood. Just as the Lamb received his reward on the basis of the blood he shed, so these persecutors have now received the just recompense for their bloodshed. God had once promised the oppressed of Israel that he would render to their enemies according to their evil works. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will now know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Isaiah 49:26. Israel's apostasy has reversed this. Now it is she, the persecutor par excellence, who will be forced to drink her own blood and devour her own flesh. This was true in much more than a figurative sense as God had foretold through Moses, Deuteronomy 28, 53-57. During the siege of Jerusalem, the Israelites actually became cannibals. Mothers literally ate their own children. Because they shed the blood of the saints, God gives them their own blood to drink, Revelation 17, 6 and 18, 24. Joining the angel in praise comes the voice of the altar itself, where the blood of the saints and prophets had been poured out. The altar rejoices. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. The saints gathered round the base of the altar had cried out for justice, for vengeance on their oppressors. Revelation 6, 9-11 In the destruction of Israel, that prayer is answered. The witnesses are vindicated. It is more than coincidental that these prayers in Revelation 16, 5-7 along with the text of the Song of Moses in Revelation 15, 3, and 4, are strikingly similar to the songs sung by the priests just before the offering of the sacrifices. Ironically, just as God himself is preparing for the whole burnt sacrifice of A.D. 70, the very angels of heaven were singing apostate Israel's own liturgy against her. The Fourth Chalice The fourth angel, Revelation 16, 8, and 9, now pours out his chalice upon the sun, scorching the men with fire. 
whereas the fourth trumpet resulted in a plague of darkness. 8.12 Now the heat of the sun is increased, so that the men were scorched with great heat. This too is a reversal of a basic covenantal blessing that was present in the Exodus, when Israel was shielded from the heat of the sun by the glory cloud, the shadow of the Almighty. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. Psalm 91, 1-6. This promise is repeated again and again throughout the prophets. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will, will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Psalm 121, 5-7. They will not hunger or thirst. Neither will the scorching heat or sun strike them down, for he who has compassion on them will lead them, and will guide them to springs of water. Isaiah 49.10 Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water, that extends its roots by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green, and they will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Jeremiah 17.7-8 and 8. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and shall guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation seven, fifteen through 17 Throughout the book of Revelation, St. John often uses the passive voice, as in the, in the expression it was given to indicate God's sovereign control of events. He again stresses God's sovereignty by telling us that it was given to the sun to scorch the men. And in the very next line, he is even more explicit. God has the power over these plagues. St. John knows nothing of a God who sits helplessly on the sidelines, watching the world go by, nor does he acknowledge of a God who is too nice to send judgments on the wicked. He knows that the plagues falling upon Israel are the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth, Psalm 46, 8. In his book on the Trinity, St. Augustine emphasizes the same point. The whole creation is governed by its creator, from whom and by whom and in whom it was founded and established. And thus the will of God is the first and supreme cause of all corporal appearances and motions. For nothing happens in the visible and sensible sphere which is not ordered or permitted from the inner invisible, and intelligible court of the Most High Emperor. In this vast and illimitable commonwealth of the whole creation, according to the inexpressible justice of his rewards and punishments, graces, and retributions. But the apostates refused to submit to God's lordship over them, like the beast of Rome, whose head was crowned with names of blasphemy, chapter 13, verse 1, and whose image they worshipped, the men blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And, like the impenitent Pharaoh, Exodus 7, 13 and 23, 8, 15, 19 and 32, 9, 7 and 12, 34 through 35, 10, 20 and 27, 11, 10 and 14, 8. They did not repent so as to give him glory. Israel had become an Egypt, hardening her heart, and like Egypt, she would be utterly destroyed. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts 
where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.